welcome to Courage Stories, a podcast series where teammates share their stories on being courageous while embracing who they are and how they are allies for others. With your hosts, Louis Martirez and Rachel Wade. Welcome to episode two with Heather Rule. If you haven't listened to part one yet, press stop here, go back, listen to that. You'll get the full context. And if you have done your homework already, then just keep going. So suicide is a very permanent solution to problems that seem permanent and often are not. Suicide is often misunderstood as a very selfish act. And I can tell you from personal experience that the times when I was suicidal, I wasn't thinking about me or my life. I was concerned at being a burden on those around me, on not being able to bring enough value into the world to offset the cost of me living. Gosh, Heather. (laughs) And once you've been in that place for a very long time, it's very difficult to see beyond that perspective. And even now, the echoes of those voices will come back. And what I would wish for anyone who has even gotten overwhelmed to the point where they think they can't do this anymore or it's not worth it or it's not enough, enough I, and that to feel that hopelessness is to trust that there is a path back to wellness. It is not an easy one. It is not one that you can take alone and that there are great resources in our community to help you. And it's heartbreaking how hard it is, but it's not impossible. And that you're in a community who loves and supports you just as you are enough to help you back. That you're loved more than you know, that we have more of a future than we can imagine today. And to trust that as dark as it is and as dark as it feels and as hopeless and overwhelming as it feels, that we have the community, we have the resources to help, but we need to know and we need you to open the door. So Yeah, put the, the flag up, yeah. So the ask I'd have to all team members at ETB is to never be afraid to talk to someone who you're deeply concerned about and that the earlier you can have these conversations the better we all are because often suicide comes after a long long time dealing with pervasive mental health challenges yeah just kind of sitting in that for a minute but thank you for sharing that I really appreciate that and I'm I'm quite certain that will help others out there that need to hear that out of our 53 or 5400 team members what does that journey look like for you to get back to a good place and because you talk about that there is a long journey ahead of you you can't do it on your own can you actually break down like what were the actual steps so I wouldn't necessarily recommend the steps I took (laughs) I'm in many ways lucky to have found a path back that I deeply, deeply remember and still get flashbacks to the more dramatic of of those two days. And to this day, I still don't entirely know why I went home. That the path 
back to not even health, but just back to functioning really wasn't possible until I started getting medical professionals involved. I know there's a stigma around taking medication that you'll have to be on the rest of your life. And I don't see any shame in purchasing the chemicals to bring my um, neurochemistry back into balance because my brain can't make them the way someone who is neurotypical can. And we think of this as some great shame that we are not able to produce these neurochemicals. And it's that simple that we're just tweaking the chemistry of our bodies to move from dysfunction to function. The thing I wished I had been able to incorporate back earlier in my journey is also the the cognitive therapy. So medication might have saved my life, but cognitive therapy is what's going to make my life richer. We have a phenomenal resource in Edmonton called uh, Momentum Walking Counseling that does exactly what it says. It provides single session walk-in counseling sessions. It does not discriminate on income. It does not discriminate on age. It's a sliding fee scale and they act as a triage unit. So if you're in doubt on where to turn, in the Edmonton area, that's one of our best community resources and underutilized, underrecognized. We'll be sure to post those resources too with this podcast, as well as other resources throughout Alberta. But reach out and don't stop. So there still are members of the medical community who might doubt you and your story. When you're not well, you know what that experience is like. And trust that there are resources out there, both from a like cognitive therapy perspective, from a biomedical perspective, and from a lifestyle perspective that may make a difference for you and your health and your journey. And not all journeys will look the same. So the earlier that you can intervene if you are starting to experience disruption in your mental health and your lifestyle, whether it's temporary or whether it's pervasive and has been a major factor in your life for two or more weeks, reaching out and get, getting help early may make the difference between having to live with a mental illness or having experienced mental illness. I want to talk a little bit about disclosure. And I do think it's important on this topic to just sort of let the audience know that you and I had a conversation before this podcast. This isn't the first time we're ever talking about this that you had actually reached out asking to have this conversation and to disclose. Because I know disclosure can be a really tricky one. You've taught me a lot about this in past conversations, especially in the mental health action team workshop that we did, um, that it goes two ways. So I've learned a little bit about disclosure, especially in the previous podcast we did about being a sexual abuse survivor and letting those that are disclosing guide that disclosure. And then you've also talked to me about the other side of it too, around being like a healthy, thoughtful discloser as well. So can you just talk to me on both sides of that, how important that is in this process of helping someone? So let's talk about healthy disclosure first. So I know that some of the illnesses and experiences I've lived with may not be comfortable and may more importantly be triggering to someone who, for example, has been touched by suicide. It would be difficult for me to know what their life story is if we don't have that relationship yet. And so one of the strategies I've developed to help deal with that is um, asking before I disclose all of my story whether the listener's in a place where 
they can they can hear the story or if I need to find somebody else or if they can help me find somebody else. So, for example, I might say, Rachel, are you in a place today? I've got something I want to talk to you about, but it might get a bit emotional. Are you in a place today where we can have that conversation? It's about mental health. And leave that to you to say, yes, I'm in a healthy place or I wish I could. This is not a good time or place for me, but let me find someone who is. And especially when dealing with very triggering disclosures such as around suicide to continue that conversation in a way where okay I want to share a little bit more like you're still in a good place and check in as you dig a little deeper into the story because one of the things we know is that people have lived in silence for so long that when they find someone who they think might understand quite often the floodgates open and it's a very long and very emotional story and can you imagine telling that to someone who themselves really isn't in a healthy place like that's the more that you can be respectful of your listener and understand that mental illness is so common one in five Canadians has had some experience with mental illness and will experience mental illness event in their lifetime that you could be endangering your listener by adding that weight on when you think about your own experience what is the best way to help someone disclose do it so that it's beneficial to them Let them lead. Let them lead the conversation. They'll tell you as much or as little as they're comfortable sharing. Ask good questions like, are you comfortable if I share this with someone else on the team or is this just between us? Personally, I am an advocate for disclosure when and where it makes sense for a person. I have disclosed to every leader but one that I've had at ATB that I live with mental illness and this is what it looks like this is what I will need, this is how to interpret it. In many cases, I have disclosed to members of teams I work very closely on so that they can recognize the signs in me, not only of distress, but of where my illness is just interfering with my ability to maintain that healthy mask. Yeah. So for example, the social phobia and generalized anxiety mean that I will appear to be much, much, much more upset than I actually am most of the time. I will seem to break down over everything. And it's a chemical reaction that has etched itself into a very deep neural pathway that I have very little ability to mitigate, even with the medication I'm on, even with the cognitive therapy that I'm using. And in that case, are you feeling really upset or are you just displaying, like, is it just coming across that you're more upset? Because I think there's a difference. Like, you may be that you are feeling more upset than you would like to feel about whatever that situation is and you're able to take that way. So is that the case or is it that you're actually not even feeling that upset, but it comes across physically like you are? It's a little bit of both. And it depends on what's happening, but it's a safe bet that if I'm slightly annoyed and inconvenienced that I might look like I've lost a pet. Especially in certain, like in very certain situations, I have very specific triggers that will make it more likely that I will physically present as extremely upset. And despite my best efforts, it's challenging for me to control that response. I am also just a very passionate person. One of the things that goes along with feeling deeply about things um, that 
is associated with the illnesses I have is that I care a lot about a lot of things. And so personality-wise, I'm also just very emotional. So some of that is illness-related, some of it's not. Yeah, some of it's just Heather. <laughs> um, and that's that's okay too, right? So I am wondering a little bit about, um, you talked about disclosing to some of your leaders. So can you tell us about that story? Maybe one that was more meaningful to you. What? How did that actually go down, especially for those who are really wanting to disclose or are maybe considering whether or not they should? Sure. Before I came to ATB, I definitely worked in workplaces where I did not disclose, especially very early on in my mental illness challenge. And what I learned the hard way is that having a mental illness, even if you're okay right now, doesn't mean you're going to stay okay forever. And that it is much, 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 much easier to have disclosure conversations from a place of strength when you're healthy than from a place of weakness when you're not. And it is much harder to advocate for yourself and for safe work practices and for even minor accommodations or understanding when you're already in distress. The cognitive load that the illness side of my mental illness can pose makes it very, very difficult to make a clear and compelling argument when I'm not very healthy. So don't wait, basically, until you're at that space where... I disclosed on day one by my choice. Day one at ATB? Day day one one at ATB. Okay. I was very, very lucky. I was contractor at the time, so it was at-will employment. They could have let me go that same day if I happened to have a leader that did not support that. My feeling on the matter was I would rather die on that sword now. (laughs) And if I was going to be faced with a leader who did not want to deal with an employee who had a mental illness, then I was not in the right job for me. So what about people that, because I just want to be a little bit realistic, that there are some people who maybe have three kids at home and they're a single parent and actually dying on that sword is not possible for them for the well-being of keeping their mortgage and their kids fed and all of that. So any thoughts or advice on that when we're talking about like the intersectionalities of diversity of experience for someone who really doesn't feel like that's an option to lose their job over this? I will defend forever that this has been my personal choice and I completely understand where it may not make sense for others lived experience and I would never want to support a we should all disclose policy in the workplace every situation is different. That being said, if you are struggling and you feel that there's a good probability that you will need some kind of support or accommodation, you know the relationship you have with your leader. If it's something that you feel you can disclose to your leader, I would encourage you to do so as much as you feel safe in doing so. And what about disclosing to like a peer or another leader that you trust in another department, like someone that can kind of keep an eye on you for you? Is that something that you would recommend then if you're not feeling safe for like your direct leader? I'd say it would help, but keep in mind that the person that can most support you when it comes to accommodations in the workplace is your direct leader. There are resources in people and culture as well in helping you navigate. And there's the mental health action team, so reach out there, right? And there is a team member network, the mental health action team, that can be a sounding board for team members' experiences. Disclosure is a personal choice. There is no obligation on your part as an employee to disclose up into the point where you're experiencing an event requiring medical 
support and assistance. Right. And even with leave, right? Like that's the big message right now. Leave is leave. It's up to them to decide if whatever the reason is, if it's because you've broken your arm or it has something to do with mental wellness or mental illness. Again, that goes back to that disclosure conversation that that is up to the employee to lead what they want to disclose or not and leave is leave. Okay, going back a little bit to this disclosure to your leader, how did they react when you told them that you were dealing with mental illness and how much detail did you go into? Were they supportive? Were they not supportive? What was that like? I was very, very fortunate. My first leader at ATB was extremely supportive and met me more with an okay (laughs) and some really good follow-up questions about what that meant for our work environment, what that meant for our work relationship. And over time, we developed a very good cadence around, are you actually in trouble or do, do do I need to respond or are you okay? No, just reacting, everything is fine. Like carry on versus the, nope, not okay. Need a moment. Need a moment. Or several moments. Or (laughs) Dealt with it just wonderfully. Gave me the confidence and courage to continue to disclose because of how well that was handled. And so for leaders, knowing how much of a difference you make in handling disclosure well and just asking, okay, so what does this mean? What can I expect? What accommodations do you need not being surprised if those answers are a little slow to come and to develop over time, but that you you can change lives yeah. by being a good ally to people that that do need some minor accommodations. For sure. And I mean, I know oftentimes in these courage stories, we sort of really directly talk about allyship and belonging. I think there's been a lot of conversation around allyship and how to approach that appropriately throughout this. What about belonging, though? How has that shown up for you at ATB or in your life? Um, where has it? have you noticed really great belonging or maybe the lack of belonging? And what does that look like or felt like for you? And can you kind of paint us a picture? So belonging is something that I myself really struggle with. I find the experience of being someone who lives with mental illness very, very lonely. If we go back to that analogy that imagine that there's a horrible little person sitting on your shoulder whispering terrible things about you in your ear all day, you can imagine how hard it is to feel like genuine connection and, and belonging when you've got a terrible little voice being like, they don't actually like you. They don't, they're they just pretending. And that's not something that anybody but me can control. And over time, I'm trying to get stronger in my cognitive strategies to just shush the that little voice and to make sure that I am making genuine connections with people. But I know that in this particular experience of living with mental illness, people that have been generous enough to share their stories have gone a long way towards making me feel like I'm not alone and that I can belong just as I am. The unfortunate part about living with mental illness is because there's still so much stigma in the community, we judge ourselves. Um, We judge ourselves probably even more so than others judge us. It is a constant battle for me to remind myself, even after almost 30 years of living with this, that it's an illness and that no, you're not 
just lazy. You're trying really hard and it takes a lot of energy to keep fighting. Yeah, and I would say you're like one of the hardest working people I know, Heather, just as a side <laughs> note. Um, like you're such a rock star at ATB. So it's interesting too to hear that like, because even without knowing that part of it and all the extra work that you're putting in, like you're already, I just see you as like one of the hardest working people at ATV. So I can only imagine like how much extra, extra hard you're working with that voice telling you things in the background and you trying to level things out and you're doing all this extra cognitive, intentional work to be living a healthy life. But, and, and on that note, I mean, you've won all kinds of team member awards and, um, you've been on some really amazing projects and really leading the way on them on automation, like some really interesting futuristic type things that are going to make a big difference in ATV. So how have you been able to manage being like such a, like an impressive team member at ATV? I know like you're laughing, but I'm serious. Like you're, you are an impressive team member. So how do you do that while managing all of this? And like, maybe that is the cognitive work that you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that actually is? Because I'm not sure what it is. And I'm sure there's lots of listeners that aren't sure. And it's come up a few times now. So can you just maybe talk about that space? I am in many, many ways, my own worst enemy and my own worst critic. And it comes a little bit with the territory that the way I think about myself and my position in the world is distorted. I don't see myself in a very neutral light. And I have to work to recognize those things that are good about me and to recognize um, the contributions that I make. That's, that's still a challenge for me. Um, and when we talked a little bit about that, imagine what it's like to be on a cold day and feel that biting. Well, <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the, like, trying to uh, reconcile what I believe of to be true to my, of myself with what others tell me. And I know, for example, that one of the cognitive distortions that I do struggle with is that I will be like, oh, that's sweet that they believe that of you. You know better. <laughs> oh, like, man. It's those yeah. kinds of really subtle things. And that little voice in your head will pick up any little shred of evidence to be like, yeah, but you didn't do this right. And can you just tell it to shut up? Like, how do you, how do <laughs> you, you can, deal with that? You can with great practice. And so this is the long journey to, back to to wellness and one that I'm still fighting every day is to to hear that voice and the story that it's actually telling and be like, wait, wait, wait a sec, what did you just say to yourself? That learning how to speak to yourself with the same kindness that you'd speak to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is really tricky to learn after you've spent decades being mean to yourself, being hard on yourself. And in some ways, that same struggle is what allows me to achieve. One of the things I've learned about myself in the past few months is that I am used to fighting small fears with bigger fears. <laughs> so I will take a small fear like, oh, I don't think this is perfect. I can't, I can't show anyone um, with this bigger fear of I'm going to miss a deadline. I'm going to let people down. And mm. so just because it's successful doesn't make it healthy. And so I'm trying to relearn some of those behaviors that even though they create some positive outcomes, they take a huge toll on me as yeah. a human being. That's such an interesting perspective of like using something worse 
to like it's like using anxiety to deal with your anxiety almost it's yeah that's life hacks yeah (laughs) so okay can we talk about some like maybe more healthy tools that you might use like I know and maybe like meditation is that something that you would use and the only reason I ask that is because I think about what a lot of people say about meditation and something that I've been working on is is not ruminating so being able to have a thought and let it go and I'll actually even say that out loud to myself when I know I'm ruminating over something like okay Rachel have this thought now let it go. And so, and that people say that you get really like much better at that the more and more you meditate. And because that's really about letting thoughts come through your head and then letting them float out. So what are tools that you use? Is, is that sort of laughable that I brought up meditation as a tool? No, is that I, something you would use? And what else is there? I would love to get to the point where I can meditate well and in the spirit in which it's intended. I'm I'm still not there yet. Um, One of the things that I do use is going back through like a gratitude practice. I don't keep a journal. I struggle with journaling. I do try and cognitively bring myself back to what are the things in my life that I'm grateful for. True story, I actually have a tattoo on my ankle of stars to remind myself to count my lucky stars, to Mm. count the things that I'm grateful for in my life that that's one of the more affirming choices. Other early, early coping strategies, um, I taught myself to crochet um, when I first started getting really sick because I figured out that I can't worry and count at the same time. So I... <laughs> That's a life So I took sure. out, I took up crocheting and, and knitting works that way as well. And creating is often that kind of affirming action that even if it's not perfect, it, it takes you back into physical space so and into the present right? and into yeah. the present yeah. I've heard good things about exercise I can't say it's one of my strengths um, I've heard great things about med- meditation I can't say it's one of my strengths but for me one of the most important self-care things I do is making sure I get enough sleep that I'm much more vulnerable to especially experiencing panic disorder when I'm tired mm. so making sure I get enough sleep, making sure that I'm continuing to connect with the people in my life, even when sometimes it's uncomfortable and I'd rather stay at home alone to make sure that I keep that social connection. Um, And even things like coming to work every day is part of my self-care. It gets me out of my house. You're not working from home kind of thing? So I I will always defend ATB's 2.0 flexible policies And it doesn't work for me. Right. At one point in my mental illness journey, I became extremely agoraphobic. So it was very difficult for me to leave my house at all. And for me, choosing to come to work every day or almost every day um, keeps me from falling back into those ways of thinking. And that's probably a trigger for your leader too then, if you're suddenly working from home for the last two weeks to maybe reach out and be like, hey, what's up? That would probably be a good sign that something's not quite right. Yeah. Um, the odd day here and there, probably not so bad. But for me, being in the office helps me stay healthy and keep out of the house. Some days it's still a struggle. Um, There's many days where I'm digging my fingernails into my palms trying to walk to work, but it's important. Is there anyone that's an ally that you would want to give a shout out to? I know oftentimes names will pop up and sometimes this is a nice space to be able to just give a bit of credit to someone. Allyship is not something you can claim yourself. It's something that people from that group have to say that you are (laughs) for it to be really, really real. Are there anyone out there that 
you'd really want to call out to as an ally and, and maybe like a, a one-liner as to why? The person that probably deserves a big shout out and who helped through that disclosure process we talked about is Eliza LeBlanc. She's one of the most phenomenal leaders we have at ATB. She is incredibly gifted at navigating these kind of tricky conversations. And I'm very grateful to have worked under her leadership in the past and to work alongside her at ATB now. Is there anything that you would have liked me to ask you that maybe I haven't or anything that you were hoping to disclose or to cover or that you think is really important that team members have a better understanding of that we haven't spoken about yet? There's one thing that does come to mind and it's a bit of a tricky one because we we do this from best possible place and it's more just to recognize that there is diversity among us and we talked a little bit about belonging creating belonging and knowing that one of those very important things we do is to bring people together and speaking as someone who suffers from social phobia quite often those team experiences come in very very large events yeah and they do take a toll I have to prepare myself days in advance and prepare for days after for the ripple effects of being in a large group of people for a very prolonged period of time. Hmm. I will say this with the most kindness that I can muster, um, knowing how hard the team worked to create a very special experience. But one of the hardest days for me last year was the Presidents League celebrations. Which is supposed to be the best day. (laughs) And I say that with so much love, knowing that there are team members who worked incredibly hard to make that such a special experience. But for someone who has difficulty in groups of people, to be in a group of people making small talk for that that long that long takes a tremendous toll well and and you don't have to have mental illness either for that to be the case like we talked a lot about um covering the topics of introvert extrovert too right like we have designed not just atb but in general organizations are designed to be great for extroverts like you're supposed to put your hand up you're supposed to share on the spot you're supposed to tell us a little bit about yourself um often in really big group settings so i mean i'm sure you're not alone on that sentiment so it might make sense for us to take a different type of a break or to do a different type of activity where it's a little bit quiet reflection time. Yeah. Or if you're checking out, it doesn't mean you're not engaged. It means you need space. Right. Because I or think sometimes the- we translate that as like, ooh, that person's not engaged. They're being very quiet. And that's not necessarily what that's about. Or to set the norms that it's okay. It's okay if you need to take a moment to walk away, come back when you're ready. So for Presidents League, let's just illustrate that a little bit. Like what would be the spaces that they would create? Because I'm sure they're probably creating that right now. So what would that look like if we were going to include people that may need a little bit of extra room, extra space, more breaks, where it can still be like really fun, celebratory, getting people together? So I'm lucky enough to have been a two-time Presidents League award winner. And I can tell you How is that even possible? You can win twice? (laughs) How does that happen? How do you win that twice? You'd be a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) The first time was much easier. The first time we spent time with just our ATB family in table groups, listening to, to presentations, at least for some parts of the day, which takes a little bit of cognitive load off. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to sit here and listen. I can do that yeah. um, rather than being expected to create conversation. Also gave us something to talk about right. later in the day. So breaking up 
big group activities where there's a lot of small talk or those kind of awkward in-between meal times or waiting where it's a lot of small talk. Or you're supposed to be this expert networker working in the room and you're just feeling awkward in the corner. (laughs) And understanding that many people... This is their first time meeting everybody in the space. They know one person or sometimes right. two people in this entire room full of people. Right. So if you do know someone in the room, please be kind. Please come talk to that person. If you see someone who doesn't seem included, be kind. Include that person in your conversations. And how do you differentiate between I should go over and include that person and that person might just want some space and not want to have a small chat right now? Ask Okay. And maybe that's a space design thing sometimes, too, right? Yeah, like that could be like if there's no space for them to make that super obvious that they need some alone time, maybe that's a, a space design flaw too, right? And it could be. And having multiple spaces um, and having agendas that, that change, some of those signals become yeah. easier yeah. to manage. They're like staring at their phone. <laughs> maybe they don't want to talk to you right now. <laughs> standing alone trying to eat lunch they probably would appreciate having a conversation right yeah okay so it's, it's, it's some gray area in there and i think we'll all stumble through that a little bit but we can make an effort at least we can stumble with love we yeah. can stumble with caring and stumble with kindness and intent always translates yeah. um so understanding that i am trying to be kind and take the initiative to include you in a conversation and ask you questions about yourself translates, even when that person is like, okay, thanks, I need. (laughs) Recharging right now, recharging. For sure. Um, All right, well, this has been a very full conversation. I feel um, like I've come away learning a lot, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to sharing this with ATB at large. Um, But if if there's not anything else that you wanna cover, then I think we'll call it there. Does that feel good for you, Heather? That feels great. And thank you so much, Rachel, for offering this opportunity to tell my story. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. I am really excited for the impact and the ripple effect this will have on the rest of the organization. So thanks, Heather. Wow, that was an incredible conversation. First off, just kudos to both yourself and to Heather. Heather, especially just for being so vulnerable and open with sharing her story. This is definitely one of those episodes where it's a hard conversation to have, but a necessary conversation to have. So I just really want to thank her for her courage through all of that. It just really affected me. Yeah, it was an incredible conversation. And um, as heavy as it was, it sort of flew by. And then Mm. all of a sudden, you know, like an hour had gone by. Mm -hmm. But it was, um, like you said, kind of a necessary conversation. And I'm I'm so grateful that Heather actually contacted us and said Mm -hmm. she wanted to go on the podcast. And I think that's actually maybe a good place to start because I know I touched on it in the podcast, but it's really important that when people are disclosing anything sort of traumatic in their life that you let them set the pace Mm -hmm. and also that it doesn't become about you wanting to know but about Mm -hmm. you supporting whatever they want you to know Mm -hmm. Um, so i just like to emphasize that that although i was able to ask some sort of a little bit of prying questions or open questions to heather throughout the podcast that she had come forward first and said Mm -hmm. that she wanted to share so and the reason why I think that's important to point out is just that if you're going away and you're kind of following Rachel's podcast, <laughs> I don't know, tactics, to just know that there were conversations in advance of that podcast that uh, made sure that that was an open space and a welcome space for me to ask the questions that I asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've done that previously before where I could sense that something 
is coming, somebody's about to disclose something to me and just creating that, that space. So I think it's not vulnerability for vulnerability's sake, it's, it's vulnerability with boundaries, right? And making sure that you establish, you know, that what are the boundaries of that safety uh, so that we can have that conversation. If you want to stop sharing, that's totally fine as well. Yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. And even, I mean, in sharing this podcast, right? Like Heather has total say over it. So yes. there's a lot of boundaries that we've created even in our process here uh, with these podcasts around people having total control. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of really great takeaways um, out of this episode, out of these two episodes. And that is what I heard from her initially was around the really get to know one another. And there is this part of building that psychological safety is building that trust with that individual. And even just practicing building that trust with everyone that you kind of meet as well, because you never know who's going to turn to you. Yeah. Right? And you want to be able to be there for them. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I think there's little things that we can do even just to show up in allies, even in our work every day. And especially as leaders, I think too, right? Yeah. Like you never know what could walk you know, into your office and what kind of conversation you might be having with one of your team members that day. So as leaders, I think it's especially important that we're cognizant of that and that, that we are expected to step into that space when it arises. So how can we prepare ourselves before that ends up in front of us at our desk or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. What was some of the things that you took away from? Um, some of the things that were really have stuck with me are some of the great imagery actually that Heather mm. brought forward in describing what it's like to be in her shoes. So for example, she talked about there being a cynical, abusive person living on her shoulder. So mm. that having mental illness is like having this crappy little person on your shoulder telling you that you know, you're not worth it or that you're not gonna make it through this or whatever that negative message is. And I just think that's something you can really actually imagine and actually almost like a person and the weight of that sitting on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And just like a sort of terrible crappy person that's hanging out with you that you can't just rid yourself of. So that gave me some really good imagery to remember and think about. And then also she talked about being super bundled up in the cold, like mm-hmm. is it, and then going outside and everyone else is still living in the tropics. Mm-hmm. And they're telling you, what do you mean? It's tropical out here. Like take off all of your winter gear. But she talked about, I think it, the word she used was that it's like a biting cold. Mm-hmm. And so there was some really interesting language that she used to really help me almost understand it in a physical way, mm-hmm. um, in a really visceral way, thanks yeah. to her description. So that was really helpful. And it definitely brought a lot of clarity for me around what that might be like. Yeah, there's that whole piece around listen, trust, and believe one another. So sure, everything may look bright and sunny for you that day. That's the lens that you're viewing the world through. And maybe that other person seems really happy in that moment as well, but it is just freezing for them, right? Yeah. At the same time, and you have to you, t- you have to take people at their word. Well, and also the idea that there's a difference between mental wellness and mental illness, mm-hmm. right? When you're talking about mental illness, it's not like you just had a crappy day or didn't get a good night's sleep, although you may not, you may be having a crappy day, right. and you may not <laughs> have a good night's sleep, but it's for different reasons, right? So that are a little bit more complex. And I think if you don't have, if you don't have mental illness yourself, it's pretty hard to rationalize that or understand that. And I think people rush to rationalize things and mm-hmm. it's, just because you don't get it or you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point, Louis, like really just trusting, as Heather also said, that they're the experts of their situation mm-hmm. and you need to let them lead the way and, and but still be there for them. But I did like too how she talked a little bit about 
um, she gave some great advice around stopping the comments in that on that note around the you should just mm-hmm. if you want to say you should just dot 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 just yes. stop yeah <laughs> like you should just get more sleep you should just have a nice glass of tea you should just go for a walk you should just do some yoga those are not helpful for someone that mm-hmm. has a mental illness and they've probably explored all of that stuff too right, right? and are, are tired of, of hearing that well-intentioned advice but mm-hmm. kind of meaningless advice too yeah and then i appreciated that she also shared with us what we can do in those conversations mm-hmm. which is the i've noticed blank mm-hmm. behavior how can i help you Yes. Right. And not deciding how you can help. Like, oh, I'll do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. But actually asking them, I've noticed that you are behaving this way. How can I help? I hate the word should. (laughs) I think it's one of the worst words in the English language because it always puts people in that situation around, especially when you have those voices that say, I'm not good enough. And having, you know, particularly to her degree around, you know, thinking about suicide, Mm -hmm. um, saying that somebody should, you know, reflects back to that person and says, I'm not as good as I can be, right? Yeah. And it could be the most harmful thing to do in that, in that moment. It al- like should almost packs in like this idea that you are in total control of it. Like you should yeah. just change your, what you're doing. You should mm-hmm. just choose a different choice. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about mental illness, there's not a full control over that. I mean, if you could just flip a switch, I'm sure that people would. Mm-hmm. And people go to great lengths to figure out what that switch is for them, whether that's mm-hmm. medication or counseling or... Yeah. I, I see what you're saying around that word should and what, what sort of packed into that that we don't totally. talk about. Yeah, and I think there's... We've talked about it before where it's... We want to make sure that we're walking alongside the person and really listening to what they have to say. Obviously, if there is, uh, you know, from what I've... I've learned if somebody's in that situation where they're feeling suicidal and you know you think there's imminent harm, obviously reach out to emergency services right away. That's the key thing to do in that situation. And I would just say the resounding message is do not send them home alone. Exactly. But if the case is they're they're struggling that day, it's really understanding what they need in that moment and not necessarily throwing shoulds at them, but maybe more around I liked what you said around I think there was a moment in one of the episodes where we talk about sitting in this mm-hmm. and I almost thinking about sitting in what we call you know sitting in the red with sitting them. in the red yeah. yeah and I thought that was super powerful because there is this we want to help and we want to get people to green in the shortest period of time <laughs> yeah. and sometimes that's just not going to be possible sometimes yeah. we just need to just sit there and feel it and, and feel- be in that space with them where they are again going back to that meeting people where they're at instead yeah. of trying to get them to where you are yeah, uh, yeah. really sitting there with them for yeah sure. and it, it i think that's part of being courageous as well as doing things that give you that make you feel uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable i'm sure it's absolutely uncomfortable and to maybe sit in even right. actually just really painful right because yeah. it is it is painful when someone you know is in pain yeah it's painful to just sit by there and watch that. So I think we all just want to rid that pain totally. for us and for them. Yeah. Um, and that's the empathy being flexed, yeah. right? <laughs> Sometimes that's the only space they can be in in that moment. So you have to sit in that pain with them. Yeah. And that was also a brilliant. You talk about empathy and, and also courage as well. Is I love the analogy around, I think she mentioned that, you know, courage is a muscle, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it's going to really feel really uncomfortable, maybe painful in that moment. You don't need to show up as like the hero mm-hmm. in that moment. It could just be asking somebody how they're doing. How are you really doing? Mm-hmm. Right. And just having sitting with them. I think the more times you do that, you start to build up 
that muscle memory a little bit further and start to build that a little bit further and slowly you know it may not be overnight but eventually you may reach a point where you become more courageous having these types of conversations i don't think ever becomes easy but maybe it becomes a little bit easier for you yeah i mean it's just like any other muscle right you yeah. like i guess i would like my courage muscles to be ripped right yeah like, like, <laughs> shredded yeah, i want to be courage muscles shredded um i can't say i'm there yet but i'm working on it yeah and so i think but you have to work on it yeah. just like any muscle you have to kind of keep flexing it until it gets there and then it'll become second nature. You don't have to wait for those moments to happen. You can be proactive as well and have those conversations. So you've talked about like having mental health conversations, um, even uh, maybe just kick off a one-on-one, right? And those types of things. So that's a way that you're still flexing it Mm -hmm. uh, and building that particular capability. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. I also found very interesting, and I get the sense, and I don't know if it was specifically mentioned in the episode, but there is a lot of stigma around treating mental illness with chemicals and pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. right? In this instance, and I love what she said around there that, you know, these chemicals saved my life, but the therapy made my life richer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there still is that stigma. I don't know what your thoughts are on there around, you know, taking medication to kind of treat that, but it's certainly an option and it certainly works for, you know, some people. Well, and it's something that that Steve Sweeta talked about too in his mm. around mm. dealing with um, ADHD and that get help like there is help out there there are yeah. things and tools that you can use like medication to help and that is not a shameful thing that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. it just means you have a different you know set of tools in your toolbox and then maybe other people need for yeah. your lived experience it is interesting though I think even for parents too yeah. there's a lot of stigma around recognizing if your child has a disability or a mental illness mm-hmm. or ADHD, whatever it is. So it can be really hard for parents too. And I know we've got lots of parents in our audience Mm -hmm. around facing that. But kind of the earlier you can face that, the faster you can get to help. Yeah. And I think about Heather's journey and how long that was, right? To go from sort of being diagnosed to sort of later in her early teens, figuring more of it out to like at 18 years old, having a big kind of pinnacle moment in her journey. And then only just now sort of figuring out cognitive therapy, right? So there's just this long journey. And I think a lot of that journey for a lot of people, maybe not for Heather, but for a lot of people, it's around just the acceptance Mm -hmm. of it to begin with, to even wade into those waters, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. I have to do a shout out to you in that moment because there was an instance in I think the second episode where I'm going to call it Rachel's ally moment just for a moment Um, (laughs) I know this was Heather's episode but I got to call this out where you had mentioned to her that she does great things and just the shift in conversation I could hear the smile in her voice and the that that was a kind of a turning point. And I just thought about in all the episodes that we've done, you know, we've talked about leaders and allies being there, being that pat on the back, that person is that cheerleader for that person uh, and how that helps so much can change the conversation, how just having that community around you can change not only your mental wellness, but also your physical wellness, spiritual wellness and all these other uh, all the different dimensions of wellness. And so I thought that was a really great example there of just live on air around yeah. around that. And it was just so powerful. Well, thanks, Louie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I like to get my pom-poms out for sure. <laughs> just like cheer people on as much as I can. Because I think, and we've heard in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways, like even Saad's podcast that was out was around like that negative self-talk and things like that. And I think we just need to pump each other up more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it, it's not so much, you know, taking pity on that person and uh, that sort of thing. It's really giving them a hand up and saying, 
you've got this. And well, it's recognizing the reality. Like, yeah. it's, it's our, our own perceptions of ourselves are often so different from how everyone else sees us, right? Totally. And so I think we need to vocalize that more often so people can start believing that about themselves. Yeah, we went to that, uh, that, that Art of Leadership conference um, uh, the other week, and uh, one of the speakers was talking about that. It's, you know, we, all, we often think it's a confidence issue, but it, it sometimes is just that, you know, maybe a lot of the time it is a self-awareness issue, mm-hmm. right? We all have those voices in our head that tell us that maybe we're not good enough, we're not thin enough, we're not beautiful enough, we are not smart enough, all those different pieces. But everybody else around us maybe yeah. thinks that we're rock stars, but maybe we haven't heard that in a while. And yeah. so maybe you need to yeah. be that person that kind of just steps out a little bit and says, no, you're doing great. Or people assume that that person must know how great they are, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's actually, I mean, I think there there can't be enough positive reinforcement out there, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah for that's sure. great. Absolutely. Anything else that you took out uh, from that conversation? I mean, there was a lot. There's a yeah. lot to unpack there, and you know, we're trying to we're trying to taking people's feedback and not and not make these debriefs too long. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate it again. Just her illustration of what it's like. A lot of her little tidbits of practical advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think I've I've said enough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I took a, a lot from the conversation as well, and just lots of really great tips that I know that I will start to incorporate in my life, and I know our audience will do that as well. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, great. Louis. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on Courage Stories, or if you'd like to share a story that you have, please contact Louis Martirez, L-M-A-R-T-Y-R-E-S, at atb.com, or Rachel Wade, R-W-A-D-E, at atb.com. You can also join and post your comments in the ATB number 11 G-Plus community.